0: Uh, Good morning, everybody. So glad to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you today? Colossians chapter 3 is where you need to turn. If you don't have a Bible with you, I hope that you'll find one. There ought to be one in the pew somewhere near you or somebody close has one. Uh, Get close to a Bible so you can follow along as we study God's Word together today. Last week, we finished our three week look at chapter 2 of Colossians, verses 16 to 23. We slowed down considerably to think about a number of different types of false teaching that have been a problem from the earliest days of the church and still have a tendency to become a problem for us today. We talked about legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Those were the three categories of false teaching we talked about. And in many ways, last week, and the talk about asceticism was the most difficult of the three, as not many people in the modern American church are struggling with this kind of extreme denial of the flesh in order to obtain the favor of God. So what is a preacher supposed to do when the main point of a text is the exact opposite in many ways of what most of his folks are struggling with? What's a preacher supposed to do on those days? Well, he preaches the text and trusts the Lord. You make the application that the texts make and you also make secondarily the application that people need, but we let the text speak for itself. And through all of these three weeks, one message has been ringing through it all. And it comes straight from Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Look at it in your Bible or on the screen. It says, For in him, that's Jesus, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. One of the ways I've said this several times now is that Christ has done it all. And in him you are complete. There is nothing you can add beyond what he has done and what you have been given in him. And there's nothing more you need than what he has done and what you have been given in him. In Christ, you are completely saved, completely forgiven, completely raised from the dead, completely victorious. In Christ, we have all that we need. Specifically, last week when we talked about asceticism, I told you that all Christians are called to some self-denial. And certainly not to self-indulgence. But I told you there's a way to deny yourself that is right and good and proper and makes much of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is also a way to deny yourself that is ugly and makes much actually of yourself and very little of Christ. And I told you that if you find yourself indulging the flesh, like seeking the satisfaction of the flesh in an effort to find ultimate satisfaction, which is probably most people in the room, then the call is to... Set your eyes on Jesus and deny the flesh. Fast and focus, sacrifice and serve. Your fleshly pursuits are a distraction to Christ, to your focus on Christ. Now, if, on the other hand, you find yourself denying the flesh in an effort to find satisfaction, I told you last week, set your eyes on Jesus and have a milkshake. Like have some kind of fleshly delight because your fleshly pursuit, even in denying the flesh, your fleshly pursuit can be a distraction to your seeing Jesus clearly. I told you also that harsh treatment of the body does not always indicate spiritual maturity. And it does not help with fleshly tendencies. What helps with fleshly tendencies is being in Christ Jesus, having a new heart by God's grace. And living for Jesus by faith. Well this week what we're going to do is move on to what is really a whole new part of this letter. In his letters Paul typically spends the first part laying out doctrinal truth that people need to know. We sometimes call this part instruction or exposition. Then somewhere in the middle of the letter he will often shift gears and tell people how to live in response to that truth that he has just shared. We call this part exhortation or application. And this order is significant. Like if, if, if Paul were to reverse things and say, if you'll just live a certain way, then you will be right with God. That would, that would mess the gospel up entirely. But rather he talks about what God has done for us in Christ and the new identity he has given us by grace. That comes first. The received grace of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That comes first. And then he says, now that, now that you're a new creature, here's what new creatures live like, right? If you get that backwards, you really undo the gospel. And, and, and you'll, you'll go to hell if you get that backwards. Because that would be a works-based, kind of merit-based salvation, which is the antithesis of the gospel. So we want to get that order right, and Paul helps us with that. And we're shifting gears now into this next section, Some people will argue, though, in Colossians... ...that that transition actually happened in chapter 2, verse 16. But I think it's probably best for us to see it really happening here. Because from chapter 3, verse 1, through the end of the letter... ...it is the imperative mood that, that that will lead the way. It will be kind of command and exhortation after command and exhortation. He is really calling us to action in this text. So having laid the foundation of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ... Paul will now, starting in chapter 3, teach us how to live in accordance with that. And what you will see today in the text actually fits that shift. Because he's going to encourage us first to get our minds right. He's going to encourage us first to nail some things down internally. To fix our attention on heavenly things and not earthly things. Maybe a simple way to say it is, Paul is going to say today, get your head right and then you can get your hands right. Like get some things nailed down in your head and your heart, and then we'll be able to talk about how to live practically in light of this. So look at it in Colossians chapter 3. We're only going to look at verses 1 through 4 today. We'll pick up in verse 5 next week. I had a conversation with a guy uh, last week that, that really brought something to light that, that I feel like I need to articulate, that I have always assumed. You should know what's coming next week. Right? This should not be a surprise to you that we are in chapter 3, verse 1 this week. Why? Because we stopped in chapter 2, verse 23 last week. And, and you can pretty much guarantee that unless I tell you, what, we're going to pick up where we left off next week. Okay? So it would be wise of you, and it would be helpful if you would read ahead from week to week and kind of know where we're going. And I, so I just, I've always assumed that you just got that, but I want to say it so that, so that you'll be uh, thinking ahead. So chapter 3 today, verses 1 through 4. So if I were you, tomorrow morning, I'd read in chapter 3, verse 5. We get it? We're all on the same page? Good. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Let's pray together. Father, we want to seek the things above. We want to set our minds on the things above, not on things on earth. So we pray that you will show us yourself, that we might see you clearly today in your word and in the world that we will turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. Help us to hold Christ as the greatest treasure of our lives, to value him above all things. We pray that you will give us discipline to seek your face and to think deeply. Give us discipline to spend time daily in your word. Give us discipline to turn away from earthly things and seek your face above all. We thank you for giving us a community in which to do all of this, a community where we can walk together as we seek you. Teach us as we consider these things today and help us respond to all of this in faith and obedience together by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we will just work through uh, verses one through four of chapter three today, and if you'll notice... The first word in verse 1 is therefore. And I always want to point out that this word is significant when it appears in a text. This is not a throwaway word. This is not a merely transitional word. Rather, it is an important clue that what is about to be said, what is about to be taught, is based on what has just been said and what has just been taught. So all that we have seen... ...about the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ... ...really since the beginning of chapter 1... ...is the foundation for what Paul is about to say when he starts in chapter 3. This is probably the biggest therefore in the entire letter. There are several of them. In fact, you're going to see them over the next couple weeks if you just look ahead. There's a lot of therefores, like we're, we're building and building... But this one, at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, is the biggest one because it reaches all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, and says, based on all of this, I'm about to tell you some things that you need to do. Okay, And we want to nail that down. We want to get that right. We are moving here in chapter 3 from exposition to exhortation. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. How many of you read NIV? New International Version. Those of you that have NIV will notice that it renders the word behind if as since. Since you have been raised up with Christ. And while that is not a great translation of the word itself, it is exactly the right idea behind how the word if is being used in the text here. In other words, the actual word in the Greek language is if, right? And that's why literal translations like ESV and New American Standard translate it that way. But it's being used with the sense of sense. Does that make sense? Maybe not. That's gold, though. You write that down. It's being used the same way it's used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when Paul says, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep in Christ. If we believe that, we certainly believe that. We certainly believe that Jesus has died and risen again, right? We just sang about that for half an hour. Of course we believe that. So sometimes that word if is used with the, with the uh, feeling of sense, certainty um, uh, of, of the fact. Remember, Paul is writing this letter, Colossians, to believers in Jesus who are identified with Jesus. They are united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. And therefore, they have been raised up with Christ. In fact, he has just finished a section where he warns people against any teacher who would tell them that their Christian experience is somehow incomplete. That there is something more to be offered by legalism or mysticism or asceticism. As if by those things, one would really be raised up with Christ. No, he says, no, that's not the key. You are complete in Christ. You have been raised up with him. It is a done deal. In fact, flip over the page and look at chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And listen to the, to the sense of accomplished fact in all of this. That this, this is true for those who are in Christ. You have been raised up. It's not a question of if, but since you have been raised from the dead. Look at uh, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. He says, "See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ." "...having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Like, you get it? You, you have been, if you are in Christ, you have been raised up with him. Paul says it similarly in Galatians chapter 2. The accomplished fact of this new life, look at it on the screen, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself up for me. Look how he says it in Romans chapter 6 verse 3. He says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him in in baptism, through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So in verse 1, if is not there to cast doubt on their having been raised with Christ. Rather, it's there to affirm it. And from that affirmation of the reality of their new life in Christ, he is going to encourage some action. But Before we move on to what that action looks like, I want us to take one minute to just dwell on and delight in this reality that if we are in Christ, we have been raised from the dead. Richard Lucas says it like this, this vividly describes what it means to be a true believer, alive from the dead. Don't you love that? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's your story, alive from the dead. I heard a guy named Louis Giglio one time talking about how we should give our testimony. And he said, Our testimony is simple I was dead, now I'm alive, Jesus did that. Like, that's a crazy story, is it not? I was dead. Now I'm alive, and Jesus did that. That's my story. Is that your story? Is it your story that I was dead, and now I'm alive, and Jesus did it? If not, I want you to know that Jesus brings dead men to life. He brings dead men to life, and maybe he's going to do it today. The Bible teaches clearly that apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Because God is holy And you are sinful, sin deserves death. And apart from Christ, we are all dead, dead men. That's how we come into the world, spiritually dead men. But God makes dead people live. And I'm not just talking about physical resurrection. I'm talking about spiritual resurrection. I'm talking about eternal resurrection. God makes dead people live by grace as a gift. No dead man deserves life. No dead man can earn his own life, but God makes dead men live as a gift of his grace, and it happens by faith. It happens by, how do do you come to life? By grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How does one who is dead and deserves to be dead and deserves only condemnation and judgment from God for all of eternity, how does one in that state come to live as a gift? as a gift of grace by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm inviting you today to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and be raised from the dead. That'd be the greatest thing that could happen for you today. That you would have a story that goes like this. I was dead, now I'm alive. And Jesus did that. All praise to his name. But I think there are some people in this room today who would say, yeah, that's my story. That's my story, I was dead, now I'm alive, Jesus did it. Sure, of course that's my story. I've been at this church for 40 years. Of course that's my story. I was reflecting on this earlier this week with some friends, and we were talking about Lazarus, the story of the the raising of Lazarus. You remember this story? In John chapter 11, Jesus' buddy died. Gets word that he's died, and Jesus doesn't immediately go. Like four days later, he gets to the tomb. He's like, don't worry. Your brother will live again. All this stuff happens. And he has the people roll the stone away from the tomb. And somebody says, no, 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 we don't want to do that. He'll stink at this point. It'll stink a lot. And he's like, no, 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 do it. And Jesus Jesus goes to the tomb. And what's he say? To dead dead Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And what's Lazarus do? Comes out of the grave. Right? He, he is still bound, he's still got stuff around his hands and around his feet and he's got this thing on his head. And G- Jesus is like, take all that stuff off of him because he's not dead anymore, he's alive and he, and he lives on after that. Now he dies again later, we'll talk about that another day. But he lives on after that. But I, I think, how absurd would it be if Jesus goes to the tomb, rolls it away, it smells terrible. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus just sits up. Period. End of story. How sad would that be that Lazarus wouldn't come out of the grave and live the new life God has just given to him? But I think there are a lot of people in the church that are like that. They're like, yeah, I was dead, now I'm alive, Jesus did that, and you're still in the grave. You're not, you're not living any kind of new life. You're not, you're not living out this vitality that he's given to you as a gift of grace. You were dead, now you're alive. Run around. Like, shout it out. Tell the world, Jesus did that. But, man, I, I really do think that, especially in a church like ours, there are a lot of people that are like, just sat up on the, on the ledge of the grave, and like, you're, you're happy with that. I want to invite you to come out. Come out and live the new life God has given to you by his grace and tell the world Jesus did that. We are alive. We used to be dead. We have been raised with Christ. So as those who have experienced this new life, here's what you need to do in the text. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, this is a great translation of the words. When New American Standard says keep seeking, it nails it. Because this is a present, active, imperative verb. That might not mean anything to you, but I'm going to explain it. It means it's a continuous, ongoing action. It's not a one and done kind of deal. It's a call to continuous, consistent action. Every day, every moment, keep seeking the things that are above. This implies that it won't come naturally. It's going to take focus. It's going to take effort. It's going to take discipline and intentionality on our part to keep focusing, to keep seeking the things that are above. It's a call to action, to consistent action. So what are these things above that we are to seek? He says, keep on seeking the things above. What are these things above? John MacArthur says this. He says, the things above refers to the heavenly realm and hones in on the spiritual values that characterize Christ, such as tenderness, kindness, meekness, patience, wisdom, forgiveness, strength, purity, and love. Now, I think John MacArthur is right. At least he's on the right track. But I would really hesitate to nail it down too specifically, since Paul doesn't nail it down specifically. He, he doesn't say, keep seeking the things above, which are blah, 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 blah. He just leaves it at keeping uh, keep seeking the things that are above. In fact, I believe that if we were to get too specific about this, we could fall into a similar unbalanced emphasis that false teachers usually have. In other words, we, we could get all consumed about being patient And forget all about being pure. Something like that. So I think Paul intentionally leaves it quite vague what he's talking about when he says, keep seeking the things above. I think, however, we can say with confidence from the text that he is talking about seeking Christ and all that is associated with him. Look at the way he says it. He says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So if we're going to seek the things above, we're going to seek Jesus And everything that is associated with Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that himself. At the end of Matthew 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So so Paul is just essentially repeating what Jesus said. Keep on seeking his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Notice, though, at the end of verse 1, it talks about Christ seated at the right hand of God. I want to stop there and just delight in that for a minute. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That that is a position of power and authority. You realize that, right? Not just anybody gets to sit at the right hand. And if you sit at the right hand, you are the one with power and authority over all things. And Jesus is above all, right? Right? We've talked about the supremacy of Christ in Colossians already. And here, once again, Paul affirms it. He is seated at the right hand of God. But I think what is even more interesting than that is the New Testament's usage of the idea of Jesus sitting. Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, particularly the author of Hebrews, and how he talks about this. He talks about Jesus having offered the once-for-all sacrifice that cleanses a man really on the inside and provides true propitiation, true atonement. Jesus offered one sacrifice, and then what did he do? He sat down because his work was finished. You realize that an old covenant priest, those Levitical priests in the Old Testament, they never got to sit down. Their work was never done. They would offer one sacrifice and immediately start thinking about when's the next sacrifice. Maybe it was the morning and then it was the evening. Or even on that great day of atonement, that once a year sacrifice for sins. They would offer that sacrifice and immediately start thinking about next year's day of atonement sacrifice. The old covenant priest never sat down because his work never really worked. But Jesus Christ offers one sacrifice and he sits down. He sits down because it is finished. He says that from the cross. It's done. The work is accomplished. It's completed. And so Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father until he returns to take us home. I love that. I love that he is in power and authority over all things. And he is sitting because his work of sacrifice, his work of atonement, his work of propitiation is accomplished completely. So Paul is saying here, seek him. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. I talked with some guys earlier this week, and I posed this question. What's the difference between seeking things above and setting your mind on things above? In verse 1, he says, Seek, keep on seeking. And here he says, set your mind. What's the difference between those two things? And we talked about a lot of possibilities But in the end, landed on the fact that the point here is not the difference between seeking and setting. The point here is that it's the same. Sameness is the point, and the repetition serves to emphasize the importance of focus in our lives. Right? Keep on seeking the things above. Set your mind on the things above. It's not that those two things are radically different, but they're exactly the same, and it's teaching us that part of living out this new life that we have in Christ is focusing our attention, focusing our affection. In the world of all kinds of distractions, we've got to zoom in on Jesus. We've got to zoom in on the heavenly things and really focus. I think that's what's going on here. And this word that's translated in verse 2 as set your mind, is just like seek in verse 1. It is also present active imperative. It also denotes a continuous ongoing action. And what I want to stress here is that this cannot be passive. It's, it's active voice. It's not passive. It's not as if you get the gift of setting your mind on things above, but rather you are called to do this thing. It is not passive. It is active. It will not happen naturally. Your default mindset will not be on the things above. Your default mindset will be on the things of the earth. And so we are called here to set, keep on setting our minds on the things above. But notice, he takes it up a notch, I believe, in verse 2 when he says, keep on setting your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Maybe that's the best way to define what are the things above that we're to keep on seeking and keep on setting our minds on. Well, it's not the things below. It's not the things of earth. It's not material things. Cars and houses and lands that are of the world. It's not even immaterial worldly things like position and power and pride. Speaking of pride, those worldly things also cannot be sin, right? We can't set our mind on sin, We've got to set our mind on things above, godly living. And I will tell you, I want, to, I want to be honest with you in this. This is so hard for me. It is so hard for me to keep on setting my mind on things above and not on things on earth. I struggle with this. I struggle with keeping my focus upward instead of downward. My mind is often consumed by material things, by thoughts of material things. Laura can tell you that on any given holiday that is a gift giving occasion, if you ask me, what do you want for your birthday? What do you want for Christmas? I know. Like, I got a list. I struggle with this. I struggle with this kind of material world focus on the things on the earth rather than things above. I also struggle with having my mind consumed by superficial activities. I confess to you that I often daydream about adventures and challenges. I get caught up in it for hours at a time, thinking about what's next, what could I try, how far could I push, struggle to keep my mind set on things above because I'm so consumed by things on earth. I confess to you also that I am often consumed in my thoughts by internal weaknesses I tend to dwell on past failures like my own past failures I can rewind in my mind like this to moments in high school where I said stupid things I did stupid things I I can rewind and like go back and get stuck in moments where I failed miserably I just get stuck there my mind just goes there and can't get away I can go back to moments of disappointment, but probably more than anything, my mind gets stuck in wounds from the past. Like I, I can just get stuck in a place, in a memory of being wounded, and my mind be totally consumed by this thing that is so worldly, and therefore distracted from what is heavenly. all of these, whatever it looks like for you. I'm just saying it's hard. It's hard to keep setting your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. It's easy. It's easy to fix your mind on things on the earth. It's hard to fix your mind on things above. All those earthly things are just a distraction, though, from heavenly things. In fact, look at the context. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. We mentioned the very end of this a while ago. You know, the seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. But I want you to see the context of that statement now because it exactly fits what we're talking about here. Jesus is talking to a group of people who are just absolutely fixated on worldly things. They're all worried about what they're gonna eat and what they're gonna drink and what they're gonna wear and all of these things. And Jesus says, seek my kingdom, my righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Like get your priorities right. Look what it says in verse 25, Matthew chapter 6. Let's start reading in verse 25. It says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not toil. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your Father in heaven feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Does that just wreck any of the rest of you right there? Who of you, by being worried, could add a single hour to your life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? That's a killer right there too, isn't it? Worried about all these worldly things, earthly things, you've got weak faith. Verse 31, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, verse 34, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That's just another way that the scripture teaches us to keep setting your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. But I'm telling you that takes effort. That takes discipline. Because you are prone You are default to think about food and clothing and all those things on the earth. I read a question as I studied this week that I think is super convicting. It was to me. The question was this. What gets your attention when nothing else is going on? If that ever happens, (laughs) if you've got nothing else going on, where does your mind go? What do you think about? That's what your mind is set on. And the exhortation, the command of this text is in those moments and every other moment, keep setting your mind on things above. We want Jesus to be our consuming thought and not something from this world. Look at verse three. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The word for there is significant, tells us that this is the basis of the command. The basis for... uh, Seek, keep on seeking, and keep on setting your mind is is built on this foundation. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We're going back to the truths we have spent so much time on over the last several weeks. Even before Christmas, we were talking about these things, that you are complete in Christ. There's nothing more that you need, nothing you can add. And notice he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a super interesting way to talk about it. Two things. Two things. From that little phrase, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Number one, there is a sense that all of this is already, but not yet. Like your life is already hidden with Christ in God and not yet to be revealed. Because he's going to say that in the next verse, right? Your life is hidden, but when he's revealed, you'll be revealed. And so there is a sense in which our salvation is already done. It's already accomplished. It's already sure and certain. And at the same time, it's not yet Fulfilled. It's not yet consummated. And so we wait longingly for that day of fulfillment. Not with doubts about what, where we stand now, but in hope of seeing the fullness of our salvation come to light. Does that make sense? So there's this already not yet tension when he says your life is hidden with Christ in God, but also there is a great sense of security. When he talks about your life being hidden with Christ in God, you need to understand that in the first century, if you had something valuable... You didn't take it to the bank. If you had something valuable, you hid it. You hid it so no one knew where it was and could take it away. Because if someone knew that you had something valuable in your house, they could easily come and steal it from you. But if you've got something valuable, you hide it so that it remains secure. And that's, I think, one of the things we need to get from this part of the text is that if we are in Christ, we are hidden with him. In God, there is a safety and a security to our salvation that He has hidden us away. The word is crypto. The Greek word is crypto. And and, and when I read that, I thought, well, we talk about that today. We talk about cryptocurrency. There's supposed to be super secure currency, right? That no one can take away. It's totally hidden. And our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We sang last week One with Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. We sang about this glorious truth last week. The reality of our union with Christ, the reality of our union with Christ is the basis for the command to seek the things above, to set our mind on the things above. And look at this hope in verse 4. He says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Spend some time chewing today later on this idea that Christ is our life. When Christ, who is our life. He is not just an addition to our already established identity. Jesus Christ is our life. He is the fullness of our life. We have no life apart from him. Notice also this text teaches that Christ is coming back. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. For those who are in Christ, the day of his return be the best day ever, right? A day of consummation, a day of vindication, a day of victory and celebration for all of eternity when Christ returns to take us home. That's gonna be a good day for those who are in Christ, right? You pumped about that day? When we sing about that day, you get excited? The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend and it's swell with my soul because my life is hid with Christ on high. For those who are in Christ the day of his revelation is the best day ever. And for those who are not in Christ, the day of his revelation is the worst day ever because it will be for you a day of judgment, a day of destruction, a day of wrath. So again, I invite you to repent of your sins Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be raised from the dead and have your life hidden with Christ in God. For those who are in Christ, we will be with him in glory. That day is coming. It's sure and certain and we long for it with eager expectation, right? But in the meantime, we wait. I was reading one, one preacher talked about this. He talked about this idea of waiting and he, and he compared two different kinds of waiting. He talked about rainy day waiting Rainy day waiting and and house company waiting. Traveler expectation waiting. Rainy day waiting, what do you do? That's exactly right. You just wait for the rain to stop. And you look out the window, doing absolutely nothing, just waiting for the rain to stop. That is not how we wait for the day of the Lord. We wait for the day of the Lord like a visitor is coming to our house, like the most important visitor is coming to our house. And we are busy and we are making preparations and we are seeking to honor him so that when he shows up, we're ready for him to be there. We, we don't sit with our chin on the window seal and say, oh, when's he going to come back? That's, the, that's not the picture of our waiting for the day of the Lord. Rather, we're like, oh, who, who needs to know he's coming? And what do we need to do to get ready? And I want to be found faithful when he comes. I want to be found serving him when he comes. I want to be found honoring him when he comes. And so I'm active in my waiting for the day of the Lord. Until that day comes, let us be found faithful, church. Not lazy. Not indifferent. So here's the application today. There, there's really one, I, I believe there's one command in this text. Focus. Focus on the things above, not on the things of the earth. And so I want to answer the question of how do we do that? How do we have this kind of upward focus? Three things are important. Three things are important to set our focus like this text calls for. First, it comes by prayer. This may sound counterintuitive, but it comes by prayer first. Because it's not natural. It's not natural for us to have this upward focus. It's supernatural and we're gonna need help with the matter. If we're gonna have our eyes set upward, we're gonna need help to set them upward and so we need to pray. We need to pray, Lord, show me yourself. Lord, show me yourself in your word. Lord, show me yourself in the world that you have created. Show me that Jesus is the greatest treasure I could ever know. Show me that Jesus satisfies like nothing the world could possibly offer. Lord, help me to see this clearly so that I will set my mind on things above. Prayer by itself is a way of seeking things above and setting your mind on things above. And so first, this happens by prayer, but it doesn't only happen by prayer. Hear me clearly on that. Do not just pray. It doesn't happen only by prayer. All of this is active. All of this command is call to action. It's not something that we just receive. It's something we seek. It's something we pursue. It's something we sweat over. And so it happens by prayer and it happens by discipline. That's number two. How does this kind of focus happen? It comes by discipline. Discipline to read your Bible. Discipline to spend time in prayer. Discipline to spend time with other believers studying the word of God. Discipline to take your thoughts captive. So when the enemy tries to wrap you up and paralyze you in that old wound or that old failure or that material thing, you say, no, 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 I'm not not going there. I'm taking my thoughts captive and I'm pointing them upward. That is going to take discipline, effort that is empowered by the spirit. He doesn't leave you alone. Like if he calls you to set your mind on things above, he's gonna help you set your mind on things above. You're not gonna be on your own in that effort, but it will take discipline. Thirdly, it comes by prayer, it comes by discipline, and I believe it comes by community as well. It is such a healthy thing to see people who have their minds fixed on the Lord and be encouraged by them. Like you know people like that, right? seems like every time you talk to them, they're they're pointing the conversation upward. They're they're talking something about the Lord. They're talking something about his work in the world. They're talking something about the church. Just like you can't, you can't have a conversation with them about football. Just football. You might talk to them about football for a while, but in the end, they're going to steer it back to things that matter most, right? You know people like that? Let's be people like that. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm going to challenge you this evening. There happens to be a football game. And we're going to eat chicken wings and pizza and queso, whatever. That, that could easily be a fail tonight. We could easily get up there and totally fix our mind on the things of the earth. Talk only about football. Talk only about light things. Talk only about food and things like that. It would be a total fail. We don't want to do that tonight. Let's go up there and watch a football game and spend time together with our eyes fixed on the Lord, and our mouths full of chicken wings. Yeah, right on. Like that, that's, we can do that at the same time because the, the picture is not we remove ourselves completely from the world so that we fix our eyes on Jesus, but we fix our eyes on Jesus here in the world so that the things of the world grow dim in light of who he is. So let's do that tonight so that tonight will be more about the kingdom than about a football game. Even as the football game goes on, we will watch the football game to the glory of God. We lead chicken wings to the glory of God together by his grace. So let's be, here's the overall application. Let's be relentless in our pursuit of heavenly things. Let's be aggressive in our pursuit of heavenly things, fixing our eyes, seeking the things above. And maybe the the last big application, I was dead, now I'm alive. Jesus did that. And maybe he's doing it for you today. Maybe he's doing it for you today. And if so, praise the Lord. Run to him. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we do want to seek the things above. We want to be setting our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. So we do pray that you will show us yourself that we might see you clearly. Show us yourself in your word and in your world. Help us to hold Christ as the greatest treasure of our lives. We pray that you'll give us discipline to seek and think deeply on these things, to spend time daily in your word, to turn away from earthly things and seek your face above all. Thank you for giving us a community in which to do all of this, to walk together as we seek you. Teach us in this moment as we consider these things and help us respond in faith and obedience together by your grace. Turn our eyes to Jesus. Let us look full in his wonderful face so that the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.